So today I'm uh, continuing our sermon series called Sto- Faith Stories. And each, pre- each preacher, for uh, starting last week with Steve and me, and then the next couple of weeks, we're going to be choosing a scripture text that um, reflects sort of how our own faith story has, has played out in our own lives. And it's, it's kind of ironic that um, I preached on the, the very same text I'm preaching on today just a few months ago. And at the time, I didn't realize how central it is to my whole identity as a Christian. So I'm actually glad to be able to preach on it again. It's all there. It's all there in the passage I'm going to preach on about how I and you and we're all invited to seek a close, loving relationship with God and Jesus Christ and how crucial it is that we commit to sharing that love with other people, no matter who they are. So, with that being said, listen now for God's word to you today from 1 John chapter 4. You can read along in the uh, bulletin if you like as well. John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Little children, you are from God and have conquered them. For the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore what they say is from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. And whoever is not from God does not listen to us. From this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy God, we pray that you'll grant us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the hearts and minds to understand as best we can your word and your world this day. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the passage I just read contains, I don't know, probably one of the top five most well-known verses in the whole Bible. God is love. Now, in the original Greek, as you may know, remember, the word for love here is agape. Agape. It's an all-embracing, self-giving love that is passionately committed to the well-being of other people. Or as the author Madeline Langall puts it, agape is a profound concern for the welfare of another without any desire to control 
or be thanked by that other, or even to enjoy the process. I like that definition. As followers of Jesus, that's who we say God is, what God is like, and what God does. But you know, when the early Christians went around the Mediterranean world sharing that gospel, that message 2,000 years ago, to the people who heard it, it sounded incredible. And I don't mean incredible in the good sense of the word. I mean incredible like crazy. Unbelievable. It was shocking, we hear, to the Jews who heard it, most of them, partly because in their way of understanding their relationship with God, to get access to God's love required effort. It required obeying all 613 laws that were written down in the Torah. And to the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews, the whole idea of God as love was just crazy. It's crazy to think that anything worth being called a God could be defined by such a mundane word as love. I mean, I don't know about you, but at some point in my life, I've spent some time with Greek mythology. Anybody else spent some time with Greek mythology, studying it, looking at it, plays, whatever? Homer. You know that self-giving love is not exactly what the gods were known for, right? They were petty and vindictive and deceitful, and that was a pretty common understanding at the time among so many people in the Mediterranean world, in the Roman Empire, at the time when the gospel of Jesus, that God is love, was starting to be spread. And, you know, it makes sense. It makes sense. Given how hard life is so much of the time for so many people, I mean, even now, with 7 million people on this planet living in extreme poverty, with life expectancy dropping, even in this country, because of COVID probably, mainly, but life expectancy is dropping and pandemics and sea levels are rising and wars that once seemed unthinkable, another land war in Europe suddenly breaking out. With all this stuff going on, the stuff that Steve was talking about in his prayer, it can be really hard to accept the news that God is love. And not just on a global scale, in our own lives too, and in the, the lives of people that we care about, there is so much trauma and fear and uncertainty. But that is just the good news that we are called to proclaim. Sometimes we even sing it. Love divine, all love's excelling, or God is love and where love is, God is there, or he is our guide and friend to us, he'll condescend, his love shall never end. Alleluia. Amen. That's our message. That's what we say we believe. Now, clearly, sometimes we Christians get that message all messed up. Like when we think things are going really great in our own lives, it's easy to think that God loves us and to forget about the pain that other people are suffering. Or what's worse, 
when people suffer abuse or injustice at the hands of self-professed Christians, that puts the lie to the idea that God is love. Beyond that, there are all sorts of voices in our society telling us that the very idea that self-giving love is the core of existence is nonsense, right? You hear it all the time, phrases, common phrases, might makes right, what's mine is mine, you get what you deserve in life, or my nation, or my tribe, or my identity, or even my family comes first. That's what life's really about, people want to say. That's what the world says all the time to us. But in his letter, as you heard, John is very clear. He says that such voices who tell us what the world is really like and that we're full of nonsense to believe that God is love, such voices, he, he says, they come from false prophets. They are literally, in Greek, antichrists. Antichrists. Even if they still have great power to shape the way we view the world. So it can come across as naive at best, if not a delusion, to say that God is love. But still, still, that's what we proclaim as Christians. That the one God who made everything in the universe, that one God also cares deeply about your life and mine. God wants the best for you and me, and yes, God loves us and everyone else all the time, all the time. But, you see, along with that proclamation comes a commitment. For as John writes, whoever does not love does not know God. After all, to say God is love may be a bold statement, in some settings, but if you don't live it out by loving others, it's a bald-faced lie. Or as journalist Krista Tippett puts it, when all is said and done, we will not be measured by how much we have accomplished, but on how well we love. And a church will not be measured by the orthodoxy of its theology or the purity of its people or the number of people who come to worship a church will be measured by love. How much of God's love it pours back into the world. You know, for most of my life, that's how I've understood what it means to be a Christian, too. Of course, my own personal sense of connection to God or Jesus or the Spirit has, you know, fluctuated over the years. But the spark and the hope of God's love has always been there with me. Even if it was just a little bit, a mustard seed. Although I have to say, when I was a teenager, it seems pretty remote, God's love to me, for lots of reasons. I had a really, really hard time in uh, junior high school. I won't go into the details, but in fact, it got so bad that I started running away from school every day. And so my parents put me in an alternative school and that helped out a bit. But by the time I got to high school in uh, 1977, 
I was a pretty anxious and withdrawn kid. Believe it or not, this guy who speaks so much on Sunday morning would not open his mouth in class. And it's funny looking back that the words of a song that came out that very year keep coming back to me. You know the song. It's Just the Way You Are by Billy Joel. Right? Don't go changing. I don't want to sing that part. I'm going to sing this part. I said I love you, that's forever, and this I promise from the heart. Mm -hmm. I couldn't love you any better. I love you just the way you are. That song came back to me so much this week that I even uh, use it as my sermon title. And it's a really pretty song. Really pretty song, but those words could not have been further from my own experience at the time. I didn't love myself, and I couldn't imagine anyone else loving me just the way I was. In fact, at some point, my mom decided to do something drastic because I was so down. Now, I'm, I'm really glad that we're not going out live today because my mom said she was going to watch this sermon, so now I can be really honest. <laughs> now I can be really honest, although I think it is recorded. So, Mom, forgive me. Uh, she, she, she didn't just suggest I go to youth group. She commanded it. <laughs> Don, you're going to youth group. So one Wednesday evening, um, my mom drove me down to La Jolla Presbyterian Church in suburban San Diego, where I, where I was living, and I got out of the car in a huff, and I walked into the building to go to youth group for the very first time in my life, and I think my first response was probably to turn tail and run away as fast as I could, but I didn't. Because partly, as it turns out, my, uh, the youth group was also a youth choir. In fact, that was the attraction for me. It was a, it was a youth choir because I've always loved singing. Although maybe you didn't catch that a few minutes ago. But anyway. <laughs> so I walked into the room where I heard a bunch of kids singing. And um, that's where the youth choir was. And so the, the director, the, the choir director, who was also the youth minister, is a guy Steve knows to Sonny Salisbury. Uh, he stopped the music to welcome me and he told me to go stand with the other boys uh, who were singing stuff. And, and I did that. And there were probably 40 kids in the room and I didn't know any of them except for my younger sister who'd already been part of the youth choir for a while. Anyway, as it turns out, I actually had a really good time that night. I loved, loved, loved singing in the choir. And even if I didn't much, have much patience for all the fun and games part of youth group that came after practice, I started going back every week. For me, the draw was a combination of the music itself and the fact that we were all singing it together as a team. But you know, beyond that, it was just incredible for me to be having such a great experience in, of all places, a church. Which is ironic, because when I was a little boy, I adored church. I adored it. Before I was born, my parents had lived in Savannah, Georgia, 
and they both worked in segregated hospitals. My dad is a doctor, my mom is a nurse. And they were pretty disgusted by what they saw back in the 60s in a segregated hospital, how patients were treated unequally just because of the color of their skin. I've heard some horrible stories about that. So they decided to move. They moved up to, uh, my dad took a job at uh, National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, and we, we um, moved to Kensington, Maryland, outside of DC. And my parents decided to join a little Presbyterian church there because the pastor was very active in the civil rights movement. In fact, he'd marched in Selma. So I went to nursery school there, Sunday school, and I, I felt loved. I felt accepted, safe in church. I mean, I remember that what especially drew me was Sunday morning, the kids would come in before Sunday school and sit in the sanctuary, and as the sun came through the stained glass windows, that sun, every, every Sunday morning, I had this incredible sense of warmth and light and love that would come over me as the sun streamed through those windows. And I knew that um, just like everyone else, red and yellow, black and white, I was precious in God's sight. But that feeling begun to fade by the time my family moved to California. I was seven, even though it never left me entirely. But, you know, by the time I was eight, nine years old, I had developed a pretty negative attitude toward church and the people who went to church. And it didn't help that my parents made me go nearly every week. In particular, I remember one Sunday morning, my family was running really late to church. Uh, so my dad had to park the car really far away, I don't know, maybe three or four blocks away from the church. Big blocks, actually. Long way. And as I got out of the car, I saw something I never thought I would see in a place like La Jolla, California. Now, if you don't know anything about La Jolla, just picture Piedmont, except that there's miles and miles of fantastic beaches right next to the town. It was pretty wealthy and white at the time. Anyway, as I got out of the car, what I saw right in front of me, right next to me, was like a shanty town. Behind a fence, there were some rundown shacks and there were bunch of kids playing in a yard, and they were all speaking Spanish. And as it turns out, that was where a lot of the maids and gardeners lived, the kind of folks who took care of my own family's yard and house and even babysat my sister and me from time to time. And they lived in a sort of ghetto behind a fence in one of the wealthiest towns in America. And that image, I couldn't get it out of my head. Now, to be fair, my mom says that our church actually did reach out to help the folks who lived there. But I didn't know anything about that at the time. So to me, there was a disconnect, right? There was a disconnect between the message of love we heard in church every Sunday morning and our responsibility to share that love with neighbors in need who live right down the street. So, years later, when I heard that our youth choir was going to go on a tour to Baja, California over spring break, I was excited and a little bit skeptical. 
So anyway, we were going to perform a musical play. Now, the play was called Breakfast in Galilee, written by this guy I mentioned before, Sonny Salisbury. It's about the post-Easter appearances of Jesus to his disciples, where he feeds them breakfast by the Sea of Galilee. And it was sung all in Spanish. And so we drove down to Mexicali, where we camped out for a week with hundreds and hundreds of other kids and adults from the United States. Now, of course, they were all there to build houses, like the people here from Piedmont do every year. We were there to put on a show. And so we kind of felt special. And so we put on the show and went to village squares and to schools and we sang in churches and we, we even sang in a couple of prisons, including a boys' prison, believe it or not. And the whole experience was amazing. It was incredible. For one thing, as an awkward teenager, I felt accepted by kids that I was sure would not have given me the time of day in high school. It allowed me to see myself and my relationships with other people and with God in a, a totally new way. And that feeling of community and the idea that it was created and sustained in the name of Jesus, that stayed with me as a central part of what it means for me to be a Christian and for us to be a church. And then there were, there were the words that we sang. I, I didn't get all of them in Spanish, but in English, they told me about a God who, out of agape love, pure self-giving love, enters the messy reality of my own life. And like Jesus did for his disciples by the sea so long ago, God feeds me, meets me where I am, cares for me, loves me, and guides me forward in life. Finally, that Mexico trip took me out of my comfort zone back home. And my eyes were open to how people who were very, very different from me in so many ways, how they lived together with mutual care and love and dignity and even joy. They were poor, desperately poor to be sure. Their lives were hard, especially those kids in the boys' prison. But they welcomed me and the other kids from La Jolla with such warmth and openness and that idea that I got and get so much more than I can ever give to somebody else has never left me. In fact, it's not so much about what I get or give, it's the love of God that we share together in whatever way it happens. Whether it's on a mission trip like I've been on to Vietnam or to Mexico or to Ecuador or a service project that I happen to be taking part, of, part in in East Los Angeles or East Oakland. It's all about building relationships of care. Now, I could say a whole lot more, and I have, about how central the idea of mission or service is to my faith. I actually wrote a book on it. <laughs> and have taught some classes about it here at the church. But, but for me, it's all summed up in something that was written by the theologian Emil Bruner a long time ago. He wrote that the church exists by mission just as fire exists by burning. 
I love that image, that dynamic image of what mission is all about. Now I realize that some people aren't comfortable with the word mission, I get it. It has connotations of conquistadors and colonialism and cultural destruction. I, I get it. But in Latin, the word missio, from which we get the word mission, missio simply means to send, to send, to be sent across a boundary to share the love of God with somebody else. So at the core of my own faith story, there are two pillars. The first is what Jesus tells me, that God loves me and you and the whole world deeply and extravagantly and sacrificially. That's pillar number one. That's the pillar of grace. And then the second is that Jesus sends me and you into the world to share that very same love in what we say and in what we do. That's the pillar of mission. And they hold up the whole structure. It's really pretty simple. It all boils down to what John writes in his letter. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. Does it get any clearer than that? I don't think so. I'll close with the words of a poet and a pastor, actually, James Dillett Freeman. He wrote this. For the more we give to love the more we have to give. And we, when we have given all we have and there is nothing left but love, what then is left to be taken from me? If you ask yourself, how well do I live? The answer comes, how much do you love? So that's the central theme of my own story of faith. Really look forward to hearing some of your stories to do as we keep on living our lives together as the body of Christ here and wherever we happen to be. I really look forward to that too. In Jesus' name, amen.